So, uh, hello, Mike. Hey, Colin. Wow, you sound good. Yeah. You're all, like, bassy. That's because I did what? <coughs> what everyone suggests you do right before you sing or something, and that is eat half a tin of soft cream cheese. Oh, yeah, I hear dairy. It's good for that. It coats the, it coats the pipes. Yeah, yeah. That's good. So, what have you been up to the last couple of weeks? We we took last week off because, uh, I don't know, we're busy. What, what are we up to? I don't remember. Mm. Yeah, anyway. Stuff. Um, yeah. Any excitement in your world out there in uh, the city on the bay? Is that, no. Is that what you're called? I, I think they, we are, have been called that, yes. Okay. No, I can't think of anything. Um, no, nothing. All right. I'm Was there something? No, I don't, know I, don't, I, don't, no I don't think so. I'm, you know, okay. Just making small talk. As I hear you're supposed to do that before you sort of get down to business. Uh, uh, you know, before I start talking about the uh, latest and greatest things that I could sell you. Uh, okay. I should get to that. If anyone... Um, I've got a I've got a plan, a little plan. Okay. I've got um I've got like twenty four hours of driving coming up over the next couple of days. So if anyone wants to talk on the phone, send me an email. Colin at divergentmedia.com. Why are you driving twenty four hours? Because I have to drive to Wyoming. Why do you <laughs> wait? And then I have to drive back. Why do you have to drive to Wyoming? Because I'm climbing Devil's Tower. Oh yeah. When is that? Uh, Saturday. It's this week? Yeah. But wait, you're supposed to come out here next week. I know. I come back on Monday, and then I fly out there Tuesday. But you're not going to survive this, are you? I mean, there's a greater than 50% chance. Uh, Pretty sure that's the way these things work. I guess. Um... So, yeah, if anyone wants to, like, talk about anything, let me know. Because i got a lot of time to kill. And I hear that South Dakota is not that exciting. Oh, God, it's not. Yeah. It really isn't. So. And I don't think I'm even going to have time to stop at Waldrug. I don't actually mm-hmm. know where Waldrug is, but I think it's out that way. It's in South Dakota. Yeah. I've stopped there once before, though, so I already know the secret. As much ice water as you can drink. Yeah. So, anywho, um, stuff in the news this week. Um, I don't really know. We've got a long list of potential topics. Yeah, we do. I don't really know where to jump in. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of... What is, I'm looking what's interesting here. Did anything big happen? Nothing big happened. Well, I mean, the big thing in the tech world was the iPhone-Samsung case. Okay, yeah. Um, which, obviously... Uh, got decided last week, and Samsung lost very much. Um, and it's you know I, I, I guess I think the reason I put it on the list was just because I want to talk to you because I think you had a tweet which was sort of uh, good for Apple, bad for Samsung, bad for indie developers. Um, and it is sort of this weird space where like you know you feel for Apple because they were very clearly ripped off, and the court case sort of showed that it was not accidental in many cases. And, you know, I think the people there, more than at most companies, take that really personally. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, in general, our sort of legal system is so wonky when it comes to this sort of stuff. It's hard to feel that excited for a decision like this. Right. I mean, I don't like, so Apple was the, you know, they made a product that was incredibly successful and someone copied them and became somewhat successful. Like, I, it's not like Samsung was going to win at this. Like, there's, I don't understand, I don't know. I firmly believe that this sort of stuff should not be protected. I'm in the, uh, I'm in the camp that thinks that tech should be like fashion or, um, you know, like food. You just... If you want to copy someone, great. You can never you can never beat someone by copying them. Like <laughs> you know, your best idea is always going to be their best idea from a couple months earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's and it's the, the Samsung case was complicated because you had two very distinct things going on. You had the sort of trade dress stuff, which is Samsung made some devices that looked functionally identical to Apple devices. Um, and then you had the patent issues, which is, you know, a, I think a stickier thing. Like, I, I guess I really don't have a problem with, um, the, you know, the findings of these, how's that food? It's good. It's oh, chewy. It's very crunchy. Um, I, I guess I don't have a problem, you know, saying that Samsung, you're not allowed to build a device that is confusingly similar. And I know that that gets fuzzy, but it, you know, it's clear both from sort of, independent analysis and also from Samsung's own records that a good percentage of people buying some of these devices bought them thinking they were Apple devices. Um, and you know, I don't think that's cool. And it seems clear that in some cases uh, Samsung was doing that intentionally, but, um, but you have to assume that the people in the stores are doing it intentionally too. Yeah. I mean, this is no different than the fact that everyone who goes to in to buy an iPhone in a store unless they really want it or they went to the Apple store is being told by the 14 year old kid behind the counter that this other phone is just the same. Right. You know, and like you get it home and then you wonder why all your iPhone apps don't load on it. So, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Like this is one of the, you know, one of the perils of being, the Oreo cookie. Yeah. Um, the economist actually had a good article this week and I'll throw out a link in the show notes, um, about this, this case and about how sort of globally, um, the balance around patents and copyright and other things is slowly shifting back towards the consumer, at least in their view. Um, and I wasn't aware and because it's, I think happening slower here in the States, but that in the UK and in Canada and a number of other sort of, um, you know, similar Western countries, um, there are starting to be exceptions added to copyright, for example, um, to allow for more distinct fair use clauses. And, um, you know, it's going to take a lot longer in the States because of our political system and the lobbying from the content producers. But I think that once the globe moves one direction on that sort of thing, it's sort of inevitable that, that we will follow. Well, but by extension, I mean, the W. T.O. has a bunch of clauses in there that says you have to follow other people's intellectual property laws, doesn't it? 
Yeah, but I mean, what we're getting doesn't into... doesn't it basically re- you know, restrict everyone to the high water marks so whoever's the most draconian? Well, but what they're carving out are exceptions for non-commercial infringement. Right, for uh, fair use and yeah, stuff, which is great, yeah. but that's not going to solve patent law. No, no. I mean, patent law is going to be a separate case, but I, I kind of feel like patent law is more likely to be solved in the traditional means of, well, traditional means, by big corporations buying better laws um, because increasingly it's going to start being this just sort of drawn-out, knockdown fight. Um, But I don't know, is that a, I mean, it's not that, I mean, this was sort of a strange case because it actually resulted in someone paying money. I mean, usually you do this sort of thing and you countersue and then you all agree to trade patents and form a cabal. Yeah, but I think, you know, even that gets complicated and and there's usually money being exchanged. You know, for example, Apple gave Nokia $600 million, you know, plus their patents. Uh, Right. Microsoft gave Apple $150 million. You know, it's... I don't see how it benefits anyone, and I think that... Well, it does, though, because there's a handful of companies that can play that game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to... You don't have to worry about, you know, know, a scrappy startup coming after you. Yeah. Because you just take them out. I mean, there's there's no way to compete on a good idea in that landscape you either have a team of a couple hundred lawyers who are on retainer and you don't care how much time they throw at something or you don't and you either have millions of dollars to license all this crap or you don't like you know there's not going to be a new company making cell phones there's not going to be a boost mobile or who are those people Uh, were they the ones i don't know the ones who, like, you know, like, used to be that someone like Sidekick could come along and do this sort of stuff. But I don't think that's true anymore. Um, I think you can. I mean, because of friend and whatnot, like, I think it's entirely possible. You know, in this case, Samsung could have licensed Apple's whole patent portfolio for $30 a phone, which is a lot. But if you're serious about getting into the industry, you know. That- right, but I think that was a, I mean, that, I'm not sure that sort of deal gets extended to you if you're... If you just call up Apple and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting into the phone business. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it it helps that Apple also needs Samsung for a lot of other things. Right. Like all of their flash memory. And what's going to be interesting, um, you know, it sounds like the settlement here has, has pushed Google back into talks with Apple. Um, and it would be, you know... I think for in the immediate, it would benefit everyone if Apple and Google could come to a deal and we could just get, in the mobile space at least, get rid of all of these lawsuits. But uh, I don't know. If, yeah, I don't know. In the wider think- space, it's, it's tricky. Um, and, you know, there is... I mean, patents have a place, and you can say, you know, we shouldn't have software patents and whatnot, but... It's a it once I you start once, once you start drilling into it, it becomes really hard to figure out where exactly you draw the line in terms of software and hardware and in the interaction there. And um, I mean, I agree, sort of on principle, but I think if you went and tried to carve out that exception for software, it does get tricky. 
I don't. I I think you don't allow process patents in the really generic sense of that term. Yeah. You just software is almost always a process. You know, like if you if you say you know the thing the thing that this does. You know, so the only thing you can patent is an implementation. And if someone else can clean room the same functionality, then they can. Then it's not a patentable thing. I mean, it's it should be co- you know it should be a copyright where you caught co- you know you. Yeah, I mean, people I, can't I, go in and create the same implementation as you. It's hard because, as you know, the developer in me says that makes a lot of sense because I don't want to have to deal with all the patent stuff. But as a consumer, you know, the fact that Apple owns um, Pinch to Zoom or uh, Bounce at the end of a actually Apple doesn't own Pinch to Zoom, they double tap to Zoom, um, or the the rubber band at the top of a scroll, you know, should actually push the industry forward because it's forced Google eventually to come up with alternative implementations that accomplish similar feats, but actually, you know, innovate. And whereas alternatively, if this wasn't the case, you can be absolutely certain because you see that this happened, that they would just implement it the Apple way and we would have slower innovation. Well, no, we would have, we would have, I agree that we would have slower innovation in the, the cutting edge of animations that happen when you get to the end of a scroll. Well, but it's throughout the whole OS. I mean, right. But the, you, you focus on what, I mean, you, you have a limited amount of time that, you know, even if a company has an entire crew of competent designers and engineers, they still have a limited number of hours before they have to ship something to make back the money. They've cost the company on man hours and R&D. And so you either are like trying to come up with all these novel ways to do these relatively, you know, asinine things, or you work on something new. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I guess what I would advocate for is rather, I do think that the patent office needs to be much, much, much pickier in terms of what patents are granted. I think, you know, almost everyone agrees on that. Um, and, you know, I think patent terms for this sort of thing should be substantially reduced, but, um, I'm not entirely convinced that in all cases they should go away entirely. I am. Apple had a much better recourse, which was to mercilessly mock Samsung. Yeah. They got in trouble for that in the UK though. Yeah. They did? Yeah, they were they were running ads making fun of Samsung for ripping them off and that uh, one of the sort of communist... The libel things or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They shut them down. Made them mm-hmm. uh, run public apologies. See, that's no fun. That I disagree with. It's all a big old mess. You know what else is a big old mess? Uh-oh, what? Zakuda's latest camera test. Wow. That was good. I'm seamless. This is why I do this professionally. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. I'm starting a network. Mm. I haven't told you yet because uh, you know this show's not included. 
that's okay. Uh, Zakudo, who y'all know because they make stuff for shooting video and whatnot, um, they have done a couple of these camera tests where they get together a bunch of people who really know their stuff and a bunch of all the hot new cameras, and they shoot in a variety of situations in a, you know very controlled manners um, to try and compare cameras in in very scientific ways um and you know they do far more depth and they produce far more content than just about anyone else um pvc had a response to a story from gizmodo responding to the zakuto test uh sort of uh raising a bit of frustration over the way that some of the testing was done and the way some of the testing was presented which maybe made it unclear how to draw distinctions between low-end cameras and high-end cameras. Right. I mean, so so let's back up a bit. What, what Zakudo basically said was, any camera is good enough now. Any of the cameras we shot with... And I think, or a camera from every the you know every major price point, right? And I think more be more than enough for you. More to the point, what they said and what they showed was that really competent, talented crews with good equipment and time and knowledge can make any camera look good because that I think was the the whole issue is that they were relighting scenes for each camera to better match the characteristics of the camera. Right. Which, you know, makes sense for what they were trying to show, but I think gives the wrong impression that, you know, buying a GH2 for $700 will make you a filmmaker just as much as buying any camera will make you a filmmaker. Right. Okay. So, anyways, Zakudo yeah. said that. Well, and Gizmodo yeah, ran. Gizmodo ran, a, ran. They ran a headline saying, you know, Francis Ford Coppola says that the seven hundred dollar camera is better than a sixty five thousand dollar camera. Um, and you know, again, that's not what anyone involved in the testing said. But when it goes up on a major tech blog like Gizmodo, and that's the headline, and the the story didn't really get into the specifics, um, you know, it does give a false impression. I don't know that it really matters because I don't think anyone is going to Gizmodo to decide which camera to buy to shoot their next. You know, no one's cross shopping a GH2 and an F65, right? And so I'm not sure that there's any sort of real impact here. It was mostly well, just... I mean, there's impact because a lot of people are buying GH2s aspirationally. Yes, that's true. Which they always have, and which is fine because it's a great camera. Mm-hmm. And ClipRap is an excellent accessory, too. Yes, I agree. And so in that case, I agree with Gizmodo that you should buy a GH2 and a copy of ClipRap. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the real takeaway from this is just every camera out there nowadays is really good. And we'll get back to this later on because we have a bunch of camera news. But every camera out there is really good um, if you know what you're doing. Right. And the camera is not the limiting factor. Right. Every camera can produce, you know, sex lies and videotape quality stuff if you are shooting with no lights and run and gun and the gain cranked all the way up. And it can also shoot good video. Yeah. If you want it to. Right. Yeah. Saying you go both ways. Okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anywho. And if you haven't checked out the Zakuto test, uh, this was it was published a while ago, but it's worth taking a look at. Um, good stuff there. So what was the... No, I still don't think we've unpacked this entire thing. So what was the PVC thing? 
Um, PVC was just sort of, you know, annoyed at this idea of telling people that the GH2 was just as good as an F65 or whatever. The, I, th- I think it was an F65, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that the test should have been more clear and the Gizmodo article should have been more clear um, that, you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into making a camera good and just sort of producing a very nice image in a very, very controlled, very specialized environment is not uh, the be-all end-all. Mm-hmm. And again, this is just, you know, this was just one guy's opinion, so. Right. Okay. Um, Do you want to just quickly go through all the cameras that will shoot perfectly fine video? Sure. Well, you know... That came out this week. (laughs) Yeah, the interesting thing is that the Blackmagic Cinema camera is finally shipping in... It sounds like fairly limited volume, but it is shipping in volume. Um, And Philip Bloom has one and has been shooting, so he's been sort of posting some preliminary footage and then today posted his 45-minute long review video, which is a mix of footage and him talking to camera about about the camera. Um, and you know, the, I think the takeaway for me is it's a very nice camera for the price point. It is a flawed device. Um, it's, you know, far from a, uh, Swiss army knife camera. It's going to be used in specialized situations and, you know, does a, it, it has a lot of compromises to hit the price point, but, um, can shoot very, very nice video, um, you know, given good lenses and, and all the things we were just talking about, um, it's a nice imager attached to an SSD, and uh, it sounds like the raw workflow has a long ways to go at this point. Um, Which is fine, because unlike other people, they have a better workflow. Right, right. ProRes and soon DNX HD. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, don't, I, I, I think people who pre-ordered it will have fun playing with it. I think it will be used a lot as B cameras and just sort of the almost throwaway cameras on higher-end productions because the quality is going to cut in very nicely with higher-end cameras, especially once graded. Um, so, you know, I'm sure Blackmagic's going to move a whole lot of them, but uh, it's definitely not the type of camera that, you know, you buy as your sort of be-all, end-all camera. Well... If you're shooting, why not? I mean, if you're shooting, um, if you shoot music videos, if you shoot, you know, if you're shooting movies, like if you're doing fiction, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's a perfectly good fiction camera. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think we, if yeah. you set up shots and you have time to light, and you know, for basically anything you're using, any, I mean, it's a cinema camera. If you're, anything you're using a cinema camera for, it'd be fine. Yeah. As yeah. long as you don't need really wide stuff. Right. I mean, limiting factors are lens control, uh, audio capabilities, you know, the power system sounds a little bit weird. Uh, Why lens control? Well, just because, you know, you're, you're generally going to be attaching DSLR lenses. I suppose you could attach 16 mil lenses. There's um, no reason you couldn't do. Yeah. But... Um, other cameras quickly. Canon released the C100, joining the C300 and the C500 in their it, lineup. It's out or it's announced? Announced, same time. Okay. Um, this is a going to be. What is the price on this? Like four thousand dollars? Yeah, it's, much, yeah, it's a lot cheaper. Forty forty one hundred pounds, so six thousand dollars or something like that, probably on the street. Um, shoots AVC HD, um, and you know it. it 
it's obviously they've had to strip out some features to make sure it's not too competitive with the C300. So um, at least according to the specs, and everyone's hoping this is a misprint, it doesn't do 60p. Uh, it only it caps out at 30p or 60i. Um, but it has the big sensor. It has a great form factor. Everyone seems to really like the C300 form factor. Mm-hmm. This, this continues that form factor. Um, and I think it's going to produce stunning images. And yeah, this is going to be the new high watermark for ABCHD, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be really nice looking. And it's going to be just, you know, a great B camera, obviously, if you're shooting on C300 or C500 as well. It's always nice to have things from the same family um, yeah. and be able to, you know, share lenses and all of that. So, um, you know, this space, obviously, it's going up against um, either the FS100 or the FS700. Um, there's a lot of other cameras, the AF100. There's a lot of cameras in this space, but this one seems to be, um, in my mind, a little bit of a cut above. It, it's a very well thought out camera i feel um i don't know it yeah i mean if you if you're if you bought into canon it'll be your your b camera absolutely if you bought into sony it probably won't be and you know for a lot of shooters it also will make sense as your only camera um i think right. it could be a or great, a, great you know, great camera. upgrade from a dslr yeah exactly from a t3i exactly. or a mark um or a gh2 ib or something yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, the specs for the GH3 have leaked out ahead of Photokina, which uh, is a show in Germany that is the big camera show every year coming up in a few weeks. Uh, GH3, an upgrade to the GH2, better sensor, more pixels, better ISO. Interestingly for video, uh, they're upping the video bitrate to 50 megabits um, oh. inner frame, plus it sounds like adding a 72 megabit intra frame format. Whoa. Um, which That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we've experienced that there are a lot of people running, a lot of people running hacked firmwares on their GH2s um, that allow you to do things like higher bit rates and uh, intra-frame only capture. The, right. prob- the problem is, you know, when you're hacking a firmware, you often don't have all the controls you might have if you, like, had the source code. And so they're often generating bit streams that cause problems in post-production. So... Uh, having you know having Panasonic buy into this and add it to the camera is very similar to when sort of Canon recognized that people were really using their cameras for video and then tailoring features for video. Um, yeah, so, it should be nice. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is. It's a slightly larger body. Um, I do they did they say what the inter the intro frame format's going to be? No, um, the specs that were leaked were, you know, in the in the form like, of a bulleted list. So like ABCI, I guess. I, I would assume it's some flavor of, you know, IntraFrame H.264, obviously. But, iFrame, yeah, whether what did they call it on the low end? Yeah, iFrame or ABC Intra, or it could very well be just sort of their own QuickTime enclosure with a H.264, you know, an iFrame only H.264 stream. Um, right. It's It's hard to say. Um, but we'll be excited to see that. Um, and, of course, it does continue to shoot ABCHD as well. Right. So, Do you think they'll actually put it in a movie format? I doubt it. But, yeah, I can't imagine they would. Um, but we'll see. No. So that'll be exciting in a few weeks when that gets um, <clears throat> gets released because, obviously, people have been big fans of those cameras. Um, last bit of camera news is that Sony is getting into the... Uh, GoPro game into the sort of uh, small, high-def action camera 
game with a camera dubbed the Action Cam, um, which is a very tiny little thing. I think smaller volume-wise than the GoPro. It's a little hard to make a comparison. Because, different form factor. D- yeah, different form factor. More like the Contour, uh, although much smaller than a Contour. Yeah, what was, yeah, what's that one called? It's not called the Contour, is it? It's called yeah. the Shot Gun. There's the con- someone else rebrands the Contour in, uh, okay. a, in a slightly different form factor, but it's the same system or some such. Um, but but. Anyways, so the Sony device, yeah, has the lens on the, the side instead of on the sort of front face. It's um, like Handycam format. Yeah, but very, very small, you know, right. palm size. Um, uses their Exmor sensors, uh, which we talked about last week as well, go- that are going into cell phones, but, um, you know, should have very, very nice image quality. Some of the footage I've seen has been nice, although it's not been clear how great it that is and, you know, what the actual footage off yeah. the device looks like. But, uh you know, uh, lots of different modes up to 120p at uh, 720, which will be nice for the sort of more actiony stuff. Um, the really cool stuff, well, the cool things are, are, are one, um, Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi with iPhone and Android apps out of the gate, so that Standard. you can actually do uh, live streaming to your your smartphone to see what the camera sees, control it. Uh, which is a fairly expensive add-on for a GoPro and doesn't have all the capabilities that this has out of the gate. And also just price-wise, um, they've announced two levels, the AS10 and the AS15. The 10 starts at $200, uh, which hopefully means it'll street even a little less than that. And the 15, which adds some mounts and other things, I believe, uh, is 269 And so both of those are cheaper than the GoPro uh, with the Wi-Fi pack. Right. So yeah, it looked neat. Yeah, I think you know. Again, these need these sell in. I would imagine sort of staggering numbers. Like I think if we found out how many GoPro ships, we would be shocked because I I would not be. I imagine they sell tons of them. Yeah. Well, I I didn't mean literally shocked. I meant sort of just it'd be nice. Yeah. I just I was down there. That's what I was doing last week. Oh yeah, that's right. I went down to Half Moon Bay. Yeah. Had a lobster roll. Well, you should have gotten a camera. I'm just saying, they, if you live in Half Moon Bay and eat lobster rolls, you're going to have to sell a lot of whatever you sell for a living. <laughs> and not a cheap place. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, you know, I think this is a space where, you know, GoPro's had enough time to really establish themselves as the market leader. Um, Sony's going to come in, and obviously they're being very aggressive, but I think that this is a case where competition is going to push both of them forward pretty rapidly. Um, yeah, I mean, GoPro's never going to lose their, like, goatee cred. Right. I mean, the nice thing in this space as well is that there's so much opportunity to um, really maximize the way that you're targeting different niches, and you can have sort of one core product that you're remarketing in many, many ways. And a small, focused company like GoPro is so much more capable of being agile in that way than Sony. Right. And, I mean, there's also, like, they could compete themselves to make a camera that... Compete with each other to finally make a camera that doesn't look like crap. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... Because, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of room to one-up each other. Yeah. And it's not going to hurt the rest of us. Yeah. But, I mean... Yeah, it, I think it's exciting. I think it's it's been a really, really great um, new market segment that's opened up in the last few years. And it's, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, it's like every production you see nowadays uses at least one GoPro, it feels like. Um, sort of every- yeah, it's kind of surprising how long of a head start they were given. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like every in-car shot, every, it, it, and it, you know, it is interesting. Yeah. You wonder because, you know, obviously we had lipstick cams and things back in the day. And I think when, um, formats got so confused during the last decade, um, I think it became so overwhelming that having a sort of onboard small solution like this just really hit at exactly the right time. Well, yeah, that, I mean, they went into it, that market from the right side. They went in from the strap a camera to your surfboard. Right. You know, they weren't, you know, because it wasn't a bad, if you were shooting, you know, a cop show or something and you needed a in-car camera, there, there were great solutions, but that market is so much smaller than kids who want to do stupid things to their nuts and you have it ready for YouTube when they're done. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, so they got a huge market built up before I think many people were looking at using them seriously. And, you know, they also had the time to iterate a few times and then at NAB this year come out with their own, um, you know, come out with some innovations that really are targeted at the the pro industry, like shooting sort of log and... Right, and, uh, you know, buying uh, Cineform. Right. Uh, one interesting thing, because I, I'm almost <laughs> positive that the GoPro still doesn't have this, the Sony device actually does have a mic input. Um, oh, yeah, it has a, like a Mini 8. Yeah, which, you know, the, the biggest downside, I think, of the GoPro, you know, in terms of overall use of it is that the audio is essentially unusable in most cases. Um, and obviously... Hey guys, watch me do my thing. Right. And, and and obviously, you know, capturing that sort of audio is going to be hard even with an external mic. Like, you know, I think about when I have the GoPro strapped to the side of my car on the racetrack, you know, no mic is going to pick up great audio at 135 miles an hour. Um, but, you know, I think about, for example, Jerry Seinfeld's got a web series called um, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Um, and their rig is like four GoPros mounted to a sort of uh, uh, hanger from a rear view mirror in the, in the front seat of the car. Um, and they've obviously got a separate rig to handle audio because you just couldn't use the, the built-in audio for that. And, you know, right. that'll probably continue to be the case, but you can sort of see a few steps down the line where the GoPro starts to become the, the only solution you need. Right. Or, I mean, what someone should do is make their Wi-Fi connection bidirectional. Sure. So that you can take the audio signal from your phone and send it back to the camera to be recorded in sync with the video. That'd be pretty wicked. I think, you know. Someday. Yeah. It's interesting. There's been, um, I've seen at least one Kickstarter project right now to build us a better underwater case for the GoPro, for example. It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, as more and more third-party vendors get into the space of building add-ons for these devices. I don't know if GoPro's opened up the any sort of um, development kit for built, for using their external bus, um, but I imagine mm. they will if they haven't. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of potential with both of these devices and, and you know, in the space in general. Yeah, I agree. Um, so two dead hardware stories just to throw out there. Um, Sony is closing their OptiArc division, which I thought was funny. Should I know that? Well, I, th- I thought it was funny because 
I, it just wouldn't have occurred to me that Sony was still building like standalone DVD drives. Is that what they sell? Yeah. Oh. I mean, I guess like someone has to make them. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's strange because I can't remember the last time I handled optical media. Um, I got some at SIGGRAPH. SIGGRAPH gave everybody DVDs. I think it's funny that there's speculation about, you know, the new Mac Pro that we may or may not have next year. And people are like, I wonder if it'll drop the DVD drive. Of course it will. No, they're going to keep it. Yeah, I'm sure. They're going to add back a zip drive, too. Yeah. And a Bernoulli. Oh, I love Bernoulli. (laughs) Um, And maybe a a SyQuest flyer. Oh, God. Uh, That's what I had, the SyQuest. The off-brand Bernoulli. That was a piece of crap. That thing was great because you would load a project onto one of those things and get on your bike to take it to the print shop. And by the time you got to the print shop, it would be empty. Right. It's because the bits fell off. You shook it too much. I know. And then you you could. (laughs) Uh, What a bad idea. Um, The other uh, dead technology was the, someone put up, uh, Scott Simmons put up a blog post uh, sort of collecting together a bunch of YouTube videos of people recording the sounds of Umatic tapes threading, and I enjoyed it. And so if you've never worked with Umatic, um, it's one of the more entertaining tape formats because it it does feel like a big event every time you put a tape in. Um, so take a look if you if you haven't used a Umatic deck, or if you have and you just want to trip down memory lane, they were quite the thing. Yeah. It just it's sort of like a jet spinning up. You sort of you can feel the momentum building before you start getting video out. They were fun. I don't miss them. No, not so much. Uh, uh, what else? We don't need to do all these. Um, Adobe Anywhere. That was kind of cool. Yeah, Adobe Anywhere is a really interesting product. Um, we'll link to a video that sort of explains it. A very strange video. Yeah, um, and it's not a product that you can use. It's not even out in beta. It's something that will be in future versions of Adobe Premiere and Adobe Prelude, and, and probably eventually over time in in all the Adobe products. Um, but it's sort of cloud uh, digital asset management, sort of. Mm, it's no. not even that. It's like cloud storage and no. shared projects. You know, because you need to you need to run an anywhere server local was my impression oh see my impression was it's going to be an adobe hosted thing no i can't imagine that because they they were basically saying that they both had access to the media on their local network mm, that's not the way I and it. yeah i i think this might require another another viewing because i they said they both had their media on their intranet and that um the anywhere server was compositing that video together so it must have access to it on the internet too right so i think it's a hosted i think it's like you you buy seats of the anywhere server and stick them in your facility somewhere Hmm. It'll, it'll be interesting to find out more i i don't think so because they said that they're using they're doing NVIDIA, and G- NVIDIA GPU processing, but then they say they're using Omnion Media, Media Grid for storage, which I, at least the way I hear that, I hear that saying, like, we've got a big 
hunk of data center dedicated to this and mm. you'll ingest all your footage into us and we'll do real-time transcoding and real-time compositing and everything. Hmm. I don't know. Cause otherwise you're going to need like a big ass pipe out to the internet to feed to all your remote workstations, which, you know, in most sort of target markets for this would be just as difficult as, um, you know, running your own server. I mean, like that becomes a limiting factor is slow upstream and not having the IT infrastructure to do it. Um, the way I heard it was just like, we're on a fast internet connection. And so we can stream this content over Wi-Fi, but it doesn't mm. have to be local. I think we both need to watch this again yeah. and then come back and tell people what it really is. <laughs> Regardless, it's, um, it's definitely a cool looking implementation. Um, yeah. you know, anytime, I mean, you can go both ways on this digital asset stuff because that, well, and this isn't even, this isn't digital asset management in the sort of cat DV or old final cut server right. sort of way where you have a collection for all your content. And it'll be interesting to see whether that's the direction Adobe's going or whether they're going to integrate with other people for that. Because this, you know, if you're putting all your footage in some central location, you want, more power than just it's in a premiere project right this was sequence level sharing between people you check out the sequence you make your changes you check it back in yeah i mean other people can see it the the cool thing is it's tightly coupled into the noe which is what everyone who used final cut server really wished final cut server was was that it would it was smart you know right did adobe ever ship they had that thing they bought like alien brain and were rolling it into their um what was their what's their their shared storage thing unity yeah they were rolling it into unity oh avid you mean yeah avid what did i say adobe oh sorry yeah um yeah they they had this company that did like you know sort of asset level version control which is sort of what this is yeah um yeah i don't know it'll be interesting yeah i mean it's definitely um and we've talked about some of the other companies in the sort of cloud hosted media space um and there are more people getting into the space it's interesting and it's a it's a problem that there there are definitely people who um got into it too early and aren't going to survive till it's real technology works yeah. yeah um but eventually you know some of these companies are going to hit it really big as upstream gets better and it becomes more feasible to throw all your footage in the cloud um and the adobe solution of doing real-time transcoding and real-time server-based compositing uh, makes a lot of sense obviously it relies on you you know having a lot of scaling capability in your data center or a hosted data center but you know that's increasingly not an issue um right so yeah yeah, I, I I will be very curious. I you know hope we see this in CS seven or maybe CS six point five. I hope it's not um, all that far out because I will be very curious to see what it's like in the real world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New candles. We want to New talk candles. about that. Um, we do. Well, I just want to talk about this this lighting okay. technology. Um, Amazon released new candles today: new Kindle e inks and new Kindle Fire, small fire, big fire. Uh, don't really care. Um, but I'm, I love my e-ink based Kindle. Absolutely love it. And, um, they new one, which is called the Kindle paper white, uh, uses a new e-ink display, but more interestingly uses a new lighting technology, which they call something nano impregnated something or other, um, nano light pipes, right? 
nano nano imprinted light guides. Um, and the idea is that with some of the other e-ink based, um, some of the other e-ink based ebook readers have had LED lighting for a while. And what they do is they put uh, rows of flat LEDs around the edges of the screen. They sort of um, make the screen recessed into the device with a thicker bevel bezel a little bit and, you know, put lights in there and the lights sort of shoot out from the side and you get sort of edge lighting of the e-ink display. And it's okay. It's, you know, better than a book light because at least the lighting's not sort of bouncing back up into your eyes directly. Right. It's like a 1980s Casio watch. Right. Um, and it's, you know, again, because of the properties of e-ink, it's not terrible, but it's not great because it means that the middle of the book, um, which is where most of the words are, is uh, not is the worst lit part of the display. Right. Um, so what uh, Amazon's done is they've put a layer on top of the e-ink display, actually on top of the capacitive touchscreen, uh, which is on top of the e-ink, which is their nano-imprinted light guide, which they sort of described as a flattened-out hunk of fiber-optic material that's designed such that you can shoot light in from the side, so it's still got LEDs along the sides, but the optical properties of this material are that... Um, they're sort of able to build in refraction points that bounce light down onto the e-ink. And sure. from there, it bounces back up, and the nano-imprinted material is transparent on the vertical axis. Or, you know, if you're looking from the side, the vertical axis. And so that light that bounces down comes back up and bounces through this material. And so you're essentially getting front lighting of every point on the e-ink display using LEDs that are mounted on the side. Yeah, and it looks neat. I, the picture I, looks good. Yeah, I mean, um, the people who saw it in person today said it was pretty remarkable. You know, what Amazon said is they found people just leave the light on all the time, even in bright light, because it sort of enhances the contrast and makes everything consistent. I'll, I'll be very curious to play with one of these. Um, I don't know if I'm going to replace my Kindle, but uh, I'll be very curious to see one of these and see what it's what it's like to read on. The so the eight week battery life even with the light on that's what's got me. Well, that number is you, you know they, their numbers on this are fishy. That's eight weeks of reading, right. not eight weeks of leaving an LED on. No, it's eight weeks of an average person's reading over eight weeks. Right, and and so that's why it's so dis- disingenuous for them to compare it to an iPad and say the iPad's only got ten hours of battery life. The, you right. know, the iPad lasts. Two months too, if you only use it for All right a few minutes a day. So I, but I've I've never had a complaint about the battery life on my Kindle. I assume that that will continue to be the case with this one. Right. So, although an LED is, you know, those suck a lot more power than anything that was in the original Kindle. Yeah, Kindles, that's so definitely true. Um, but you know, even if even if they're overestimating by 75%, that's still pretty good. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think it's, you know, again, it's really cool. I, I as we were talking earlier off, um, off of Skype on the other chat thing, you know, Amazon's doing a lot of really interesting stuff right now, and it's interesting that so many things about their business model are fascinating. You know, Today's probably not the day, but we should talk about their business model at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Should we move on to chatter? Or? Yeah, I think we've... Okay. 
Unless there was there anything else that was really uh, none of these are. Mm. Oh, um, the smartphone is walkie-talkie article. I think is actually really interesting uh, from the Times. Just uh, David Pogue roundup of a bunch of apps for um, smartphones that let you use them as walkie-talkies. But I thought this was interesting within the context of this show because these we talked long ago about maybe developing a or making a telex system. Yeah, yeah, making a, a sort of um, intercom system that you would use on set, and it. Obviously, a lot of other people had the same idea and have done some really cool things. I, it, it's not a space I'd looked into before this article came up, but there's some really cool things out there that let you have sort of big group chats and sub chats and everything where you can just push to talk and broadcast your voice to everyone. And um, it, it, you know, I think it has a lot of potential on set. And yeah, you know, it'll I, be interesting. I mean, you, I, I mean, I remember the next telephones with the built-in walkie-talkies, mm-hmm. and. Uh, a friend of mine got one. <laughs> it lasted maybe a week before he gave up. Because it was just like constantly someone's voice showing up in your life. Yeah. You know, a walkie-talkie usually check out. And you have to be, you know, you have to kind of be in the same space as someone or sort of doing the same thing to have a walkie-talkie. But the next time, it's like you're in the bathroom and one of your friends is driving down the highway and wants to talk to you, or you're in a meeting. So I don't know. I mean, this seems, and it seems like these are kind of targeting that same space. It's like, oh, you can tell you know, all your yeah. friends. You're... I, th- I think they are, but I think that the, the, the interesting potential is very similar to the walkie-talkie model with iPod Touches. Um, you know, hand them out to everyone on set and assume that set's going to be blanketed in Wi-Fi. Right. And... You know, you don't need to have an expensive and complicated intercom system that's fighting on uh, the same RF channels as your wireless mics and other things. Right. Has no one made one of these specifically for production yet? I don't know. I haven't looked. Yeah. It's kind of research. Someone would have done that by now. You would hope so. But if not, um, these are free solutions. If not, we did it. We came up with the idea a long time ago and never did it. So, yeah, we deserve part of all of your money. Ours would have been cool, though. Because that's how America works. Yeah. It's going to have a producer station. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Chatter, what you got? Uh, mine was a an article about this crazy new tech um, that Harvard, some people at Harvard were working on where they figured out a way how to bend or slow down light through a flat surface using tiny little reflector sort of antenna things, um, nanotech. And so what they're able to do is make a lens that can do all of the things you want a lens to do, which is basically bend light so that it hits a single point, but without any of the things you don't want, like having to use more glass in one place than another. So the lens is perfectly flat, but bends light. And because it's flat, this is something I'd never really thought through before, but because it's flat, the, it's, the bending part isn't what gives you the distortion, it's a, like a byproduct of lenses. So you can have a, a perfectly flat lens with this technology that has no spherical 
distortion, which I still not sure I can wrap my head around. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing I wasn't clear on from this article, it sounds like it's only functional on a single wavelength. Um, maybe at this point. Is that true? I mean, that's often the case with these, and then they need to sort of figure out the manufacturing process to get... I didn't see that in here anywhere. Maybe I'm thinking there were a few other articles of a similar vein, but that, it, my impression was that it was sort of laser light focused at this point, but... The new lens operates at near-infrared wavelengths, but is scalable to hertz wavelengths. Oh, okay. I mean, as long as it... Uh, yeah, I guess that maybe I read that so and maybe, thought yeah, that the implication so that was it was... Yeah. I guess they could be right either way. I, you might be right on that. I mean, obviously the... It's the, a neat proof of concept, though. Right. And, you know, has a lot of interesting implications way down the line in... Um, our space, but initially more interesting in other you know, scientific spaces. Right, exactly. So, uh, my chatter this week, I'm just going to shout out three different Kickstarter projects that if you're interested in such things, uh, you could go take a look at or kickstart. Uh, first one, we talked about glitch art a while ago. This guy <laughs> named Philip Stearns is doing uh, textiles in the style of glitch art based on actual glitches. Um, and they're actually going to be woven blankets and rugs and other things. Uh, and they look really cool. And the, you know, it's both a really cool concept and also from a manufacturing perspective, I gather it was non-trivial to be able to make these, um, make a non-repeating pattern. Yeah. Right. Uh, Although nowadays they I mean they do make computer controlled booms. Right. But still, this is asking a lot because of the, I think, the number of colors and complexity of the patterns and all. Sure. Um, anyways, he's hit his funding goal, but he has four days left if you want to get in on either buying one of the actual products that he's going to make um, or just support what is a kind of cool project because I think that these would be fun to have around the house. Um, that's one. Uh, second one, a more affordable laser cutter and laser engraver. Uh, so if you know the um, epilogue or any of the other sort of laser cutters that you see at um, tech shops and whatnot, uh, these are some guys, full spectrum laser. I gather they've been doing this for a while, but they're building a new, better device that they're funding through Kickstarter. Uh, they've also met their goal, but you've got a couple days if you want to jump in on getting a hold of one of them. They're doing a device that looks very comparable to a lot of the other products and they're going to sell it for uh, $3,000 or $3,200. Um, and it's, you know, does large cutting and engraving and you can, um, do really neat stuff with us. I, I wish I could get one. I would engrave lots of stuff, you know? Yeah. No MacBook pro would be safe. Yeah, that's about all there. Although this would not actually do that, would it? Why not? See, this is... I mean, the secret is that these laser engravers can't actually do metal. No, they have uh, examples of it cutting metal. No, they have examples of it cutting the anodization off of metal. And you can use this material called Theramark to... You, it's like a spray paint that you spray on metal, and then it turns it black anywhere the laser hits and everything else wipes off. Oh. But yeah, this is the problem with these things. I mean, the, there's only... So there's two types of lasers. You can get a, a carbon dioxide laser 
or you can get a different one. The different one is the one that can cut metal or can engrave metal. None of them can really cut metal. Oh, yes, I I see. You're right. Yeah. So this is a CO2 laser. So it's just going to do, that's what most of the epilogues are. So you can, you can cut wood and stuff. You can make really sooty wood with this. Huh? All right. Well, never mind. Don't kickstart these people. Yeah. Fuck them. Bastards. Uh, final one was a, actually what I think we're placing the blame in the wrong place here. This is Apple's fault for not making plywood laptops. This is true. Okay. Well, we could kickstart a project to make replacement <laughs> shells. Send us your MacBook Pro, and we will turn it into Victorian steampunk laptop. Oh, God, that would to- totally get funded. I know. God. Um, the last one, this one's a little bit more of a stretch, but I'm going to use the power of this podcast. It is the Anthrocene Archiving Film Project. They have 22 days left to go. Uh, they need to raise another $293,000. Yeah, they didn't think small. Uh, but what they want to do is build a mobile film digitizing rig um, that would be sort of refrigerator size that they would wheel into uh, some of the film vaults around the country that are rapidly decaying. Um, and this would be, I think their idea is that this film digitizer would include some cleanup, restoration, the sort of chemical stuff you need to do to even be able to unspool some of these old films and then also do sort of a high-res capture. And the way they're funding this is that if you kick in, you get access to copyright-free copies of all of the material they're going to be archiving because they're going to start out trying to archive some of the older stuff. Um, Pre-copyright. Yeah, Yeah. pre-copyright and really just capture. I I think the idea is to make it cost-effective to just digitize everything so that you're not having to make decisions right now about what's worth preserving, but really just wheel into a place and literally everything that is not so degraded that it can't be fed through one of these, just go ahead and do it. Uh, Which I think, you know, in so many different aspects is really cool. Um, You know, if these guys don't succeed... I hope that someone does this. Um, you know, obviously there are projects like archive.org and other things, but they've taken a slightly different approach. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, no, it was cool. It's a good idea. I hope they do not. Yeah. They got a ways to go. Yeah. I mean, this is only going to succeed if some, someone with a loud voice on the internet picks up on it and really pushes it but or if criterion throws in a couple hundred thousand right or archive or or right you know one of these other people but uh you know we built a goddamn tesla museum so we can do this too yeah all right so I think that's it that's what we did it <laughs> all right right yeah okay let's do it again you're gonna be out here next week we yeah can we, do one we can do face one to face bring your mic Okay, we could we could go to we could meet at a coffee shop and invite our loyal fans and record it in the coffee shop. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we'll see. All right, we'll 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 put that one up for debate. Okay. All right, we'll talk to you later. See ya.